<clears throat> Let's pray. Lord, you are big and you love us. That makes us glad. Now let the words that I say and let the thoughts we all think be pleasing in your sight. For Jesus' sake, amen. I've been living on the North Shore for about six years now. And at least among the North Shore residents that I tend to rub shoulders with, there is what I would say by far a most common conception of God that I hear from people. Um, And I was trying to formulate it, but then this week I just happened to come across a quote from C.S. Lewis that I thought summarized it really well. Here's what he says. We want, in fact, not so much a father in heaven as a grandfather in heaven. A senile benevolence who, as they say, likes to see young people enjoying themselves and whose plan for the universe was simply that it might be truly said at the end of each day, a good time was had by all. It's nice to think of a grandfather in heaven like that. When I mess up, I can imagine grandfather in heaven saying, everybody slips up sometimes. I still love you. That's my job after all. And we all look at each other and laugh and say, dear old God, right? And as long as we have lived a reasonably decent life, we can all hope that one day we will lock arms in the great big bear hug in the clouds. Uh, In short, maybe you'd say that if you just grew up around here or in a lot of other places, a default concept of God that we're raised with, even, even those of us who are raised in the church, is one that is light. And I don't mean light like brightness, I mean light like weightless, right? Like, it's like fluffy, this concept of God. It's airy. It's nice. This God is pleasant to imagine. But some of us have found that knowing God as a concept and knowing God as a reality can be two very different things. That's what Isaiah finds out in our text today. Would you turn with me to Isaiah 6? Isaiah, as you're turning there, Isaiah knew God as a concept even before the events of Isaiah 6. He had been raised to believe in God. He knew the scriptures. But he finds out that knowing God in concept and knowing God as reality are two different things. This chapter 6 is a story of how Isaiah met God personally. And that personal encounter changed everything for Isaiah for the whole rest of his life. Um, So let me just review before we begin uh, jumping into chapter 6 here. We've walked through chapters 1 through 5 in the last month or two. A summary of what's happened there is that Chapters 1 through 5 really are a summary of the whole book of Isaiah in some ways. It raises the major themes, and the major problem has been addressed in chapters 1 through 5, that Israel and Judah are not what they were meant to be. Israel and Judah are supposed to be a light to the nations. They're supposed to be a blessing to the world. They're supposed to be teaching the nations God's ways. Instead, Israel and Judah are arrogant, as Pastor Craig preached. They're practicing injustice. They're trampling on God's commands. But it's not just that Israel and Judah are supposed to be these things in the left-hand column. There's also a suggestion in chapters 1 through 5 that one day Israel and Judah will be 
these things. These things will be true of them. And so the big question that's been raised in the first five chapters that we don't yet have an answer to is how. How could a group of people get from here to here? How could that be possible? Chapters 6 through 12 answer that very question. And chapter 6 that we're going to look at today answers the question, begins to answer the question individually in the life of Isaiah. Meaning, what we're going to see in chapter 6 is the story of what happened in Isaiah's life, and that's going to be a prototype, a model of what needs to happen in the corporate life of Israel and Judah if they are to be, tra- uh, if they are to be transformed from this into this. So we're going to look at that. There's four parts to the process that Isaiah goes through. And this isn't just an academic study. I do want to encourage you to keep your Bible open and walk through it with me because what I'm going to make a case for today is that this four-step process that Isaiah goes through is the exact same four-step process that you and I must go through as well. So step one, he has a vision of God. Then he confesses his sin. He is cleansed from guilt, and he's commissioned for ministry. Uh, a vision of God, a confession of sin, a cleansing from guilt, and a commission for ministry. So let's walk through those as they come. We'll reread the text as we go. First verses 1 through 4, this vision of God. Follow along with me as I reread that. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him stood the seraphim, each had six wings. With two he covered his face, and with two he covered his feet, and with two he flew. And one called to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the foundations of the threshold shook at the voice of him who called, and the house was filled with smoke kind of wish I could preach a whole sermon just on these first four verses. There's, every word is packed with so much meaning here. Um, first, we see in verse 1 that this vision took place the year King Uzziah died. And yes, that tells us that it was year 740 or 739 BC, but there's much more significance to it than just helping us locate the year on a calendar. King Uzziah was the source of hope for, his, for the people of Judah at the time. Because he was on the throne, people were experiencing reassurance. Confidence in him was holding the nation together in a time that was beginning to turn a little bit precarious. So his death was very much a destabilizing event. If we want to think of an analogy, um, do you remember how you felt when President Kennedy was shot? Or more recently, do you remember how you felt when the second plane hit the tower on 9-11? There's some similarity to how the people of Judah would have been feeling in this moment after King Uzziah died in that. There were questions that this raised about national security, stability. Um, It was very much in question if their national future was in jeopardy. But isn't it true? Haven't you experienced it to be true? That, okay, if the kings that we trust in here on earth are things like financial security, a stable family, political leaders, if those are our kings, earthly kings that we trust in, haven't you found it to be true that we sometimes can't see clearly 
the awesomeness of our heavenly king until our earthly kings have died in some way? I know that's been true for me, and I think it was true for Isaiah here too. I don't think, in other words, that it's an accident that he has this vision of his heavenly king after his earthly king has died. What does he see in this vision? Um, It's a vision so staggering that the whole rest of his life is never going to be the same after seeing this vision. What does he see? He says he sees the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Verse 1. There's a lot there. Let me just uh, walk us through three observations about that. Observation 1. Even the greatest of earthly kings dies, but there is a heavenly king who is seated on his throne, immovable, and will never be shaken from that place on his throne in his heavenly temple. Number two, this king is high and lifted up, this heavenly king. In other words, he's not the domesticated God that we see on the t-shirts that talk about him as our homeboy. He's not the tame God that we hear about in country music songs that uh, sort of present him as though he's cool with our failures and sins. He's not even the approachable God that some of us have heard about in church growing up who exists for the purpose of solving our loneliness and anxiety. He's high and lifted up. In other words, this isn't the sort of God that you ask into your life to be your personal assistant. The God who's high and lifted up is the sort of God whom you come to on his terms, not on your own terms. But as I'm reading this, I'm wondering, what does he look like? What does this God look like? I'm, I'm reading, I'm like, Isaiah, you saw God? You saw the Lord on his throne? I'm so excited to hear, what, what was the vision like? But we don't get much, do we, from Isaiah? All we see here about his appearance at the end of verse 1, the train of his robe filled the temple. It's interesting that that's all we get. A couple observations about that. Um, the hem of his robe might even be a better translation. Either way, two things. One, if just the hem or train of this God's robe fills the heavenly temple, how big must that throne be? And then to take it a step further, how big must the God be who's sitting on that throne? Right? Secondly, Isaiah is a literary master. He's one of the greatest authors who's ever been. Yet, when he sits down with his pen to write about what he saw when he had a vision of God on his throne in his heavenly temple, his words don't reach past the hem of God's robe. It's as if we came to Isaiah and said, tell us, what did he look like? And Isaiah's like, I can't. Okay, let me try. Let me try. Okay, I can't. Okay, let me try. The hem of his robe fills the temple. We're like, that's amazing. Can you, can you tell us more? Can you, what about up from there? I can't. There's no words. It's not different in that way than what some others have experienced. Here's Exodus 24 when some of the leaders of Israel had a vision 
of the one true God. Then Moses and Aaron, Nadab and Abihu, and 70 of the elders of Israel went up and they saw the God of Israel. And I'm reading that and I'm like, tell me what it was like. What does he look like? Here's all I can say. There was under his feet, as it were, a pavement of sapphire stone, like the very heaven for clearness. Words don't even get above the pavement under God's feet. And even then, it's so majestic, so glorious that they have to add in phrases like, as it were, because they know that even the words they're using to describe the pavement under his feet aren't enough. Friends, is this the God you've come to know? Or is the God that you know just a grandfather in heaven? I wish we had more time to talk about these creatures in verse 2. Pretty wild. They're called the seraphim, which probably means something like burning ones which means that our God in the Scripture is so associated with fire that even the angelic creatures that serve him day and night are flames of fire themselves. But even then, they need to cover their faces, according to verse 2. Did you see that? Because the presence of the one true God is too overwhelming, even for them, sinless flames of fire. And we sang earlier in the service the song of these seraphim, what I'm wondering is, as we were singing together, holy, 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 the song of the seraphim, is this God we're talking about? Is this the God that you were picturing? The threefold repetition, holy, 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 communicates the superlative. In other words, he's absolutely holy. And what does it mean to be holy? It means to be set apart, to be other. As the seraphim use this term, and as the Bible uses this term, there's at least two planes on which... God is holy. God is holy or set apart from us, his creatures, in both his essence and in his character. Here's what we mean by that. He's holy in his essence in that he is big and we are small. He is infinite and we are finite. He is immortal and we are mortal. But he's holy in his character, set apart from us in his character in that he is righteous and we are unrighteous. The seraphim must have in mind both as they are singing holy, holy, holy as they're calling that to one another. But that's not all they say, is it? They also say the earth is full of his glory. What does that mean? That word glory is a word that has wrapped up in it the idea of heaviness or significance. If God's glory fills the earth. There's a weightiness that's involved in that. In other words, if we would put God on the scale somehow, opposite everything that he's ever created, God is heavier, more significant, more weighty than even the sum total of everything that he's ever made. Um, His significance displaces things. Like when we go to the beach with our son, and fill up a pail, he fills up a pail of water and then puts a big rock into it, and the water splashes out. Why does the water splash out? Because the rock is heavier, weightier, more significant than the water in the pail, and so it splashes out. And in the same way, God is heavier than everything else. Nothing is permanent like God is permanent. Nothing is real like God is real. Nothing matters like our God matters. 
And so when he shows up in glory, what happens is that he displaces everything else. That's why we see so many times when God shows up, the earth quakes. See in verse 4, the foundations of the thresholds shook. It's no accident. This is a weighty, glorious, displacing God who, when he shows up in glory, never leaves things as they were before he showed up. You see why we began our time together this morning contrasting God as a concept versus God as a reality? God as a concept is fluffy, airy, light, weightless, so much so that I can take my life, which is real to me, and build my concept of God around that to fit me. But God as a reality? God as a reality is the rock in the pail of water that everything else must fit around, including my conception of myself and my conception of everything else in the world around me. I must adjust my perception of myself to fit this weighty, glorious God. I wonder if you've ever had that experience that Isaiah had. Not, not exactly like he had it. No two people have the exact same experience of God in Scripture when they meet him. But I wonder if you've had an experience like what Isaiah had here in that God ceased to be a concept to you and became a reality in your life. Have you had that moment? I was raised in church, knew God as a concept, but I've told you before about that moment in eighth grade when God became a reality for me. And when I emerged from my room over that Christmas break in eighth grade, God was a crushingly heavy reality, so much so that the rest of my life would never be the same as a result of what I experienced. Well, we're going to have to be more brief on our last three points. Let's go on to confession of sin in verse 5. Would you follow along with me as I read verse 5? Isaiah speaking. And I said, Woe is me, for I am lost. For I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. I wondered as I read this, why was Isaiah so fixated on his lips? But remember what has just happened. He's just been hearing these seraphim, these creatures, sounding out these golden tones of praise to God. And as he's listening to that chorus, he's realizing... My lips could never be used to glorify God in that way. I've used my lips for so many other things. I've used my lips to exalt myself. I've used my lips to justify myself. I could never be used in my lips to bring praise to God of the level that these seraphim are praising him. And Isaiah realizes he has a real problem. And on one level, it's a problem with his lips. So let's think again about that dynamic. Let's go back to our chart here of God's holiness. He's, we said he's holy in essence and in character. So I want to ask an advanced question here, and I actually, want, I actually want an answer. When Isaiah says, woe is me, I'm ruined for I am a man of unclean lips. Is he being devastated in that moment by the holiness of God's essence or by the holiness of God's character? Which one is it? Character, yeah. Yeah, that's right. Um, in other words, this isn't just like a bigger version of the experience that you and I have had when we lay out under the stars on a clear night and realize how small we are, right? 
It's not exactly that. Surely that was part of what Isaiah is experiencing because he surely was struck by how big God is and how small he is, but that's not the forefront of his mind, is it? What he doesn't say is, woe is me, for I am finite. What he is gripped by, woe is me, I'm unclean, I have unclean lips. Why is that? Why is that his reaction? I think it's the same reason that Peter, when he encounters Jesus for the first time, and Jesus does a miraculous catch of fish, what does Peter say? He says, depart from me, Lord, for I am a sinful man. It seems that when people encounter the true God, the one true God, what they're most gripped by is not how small they are in the presence of a big God, but rather how wicked they are in the presence of a righteous God. The aspect of his holiness that grips us the most, that knocks us down in that moment, is that of our uncleanness, our sinfulness, in the presence of a holiness of, in righteousness that far exceeds our own. So much so that the natural reaction when someone encounters God is to assume that they're dead. It's over. Surely it's just a moment before they're going to cease to exist. In fact, Isaiah didn't even think to ask for forgiveness. Did you notice that? Verse 5, he doesn't beg God for forgiveness. He doesn't even think that's a possibility. He just, for all he knows, I know that I'm unclean. I know that God knows that I'm unclean. And nobody has to teach me this. I just know in the deepest core of my being in this moment that my unclean self and this righteous, holy God cannot continue to coexist in the same place. Hey, I, I try to be vulnerable from the pulpit from time to time in an appropriate degree. And when I share sometimes about the wickedness that exists in my own heart, some of you who I know love me and care about me deeply have come up to me afterwards and said things like, Tim, don't be so hard on yourself. And while I so appreciate your loving care for me, and I know the heart from which that's coming, and I do appreciate it. Please hear that. The reason that I respond the way I do when you say that to me is because of chapters like Isaiah 6. So for that reason, I'll say something like, thank you, but actually, I'm not being too hard on myself. You didn't hear the half of it today. Because when you've been to the throne room of God, you can't help but be gripped by the weight of your wickedness. Maybe saying it one more way would make it more clear. No one's ever stood before God and thought the thought, I'm pretty bad, but at least I'm not as bad as so-and-so. That thought has never happened in the presence of God. That thought is not reassuring at all in the presence of God because in the presence of God, all those degrees of sinfulness disappear and fade away. Uh, replaced by our falling flat on our faces, rocked by the chasm that exists between God's righteousness and our wickedness. We're gripped by the certainty that death is imminent. So I am asking this morning, have you been there? Have you been to that place? It's an important question because we are about to go to the third part, which is Isaiah's cleansing from guilt. 
But let me just make clear, there is no step three without steps one and two. You cannot experience God's cleansing from guilt until you've seen him as a reality, not just a concept, and you've agreed with him, confessed your sin before him. Let's move on to that now, though, verses 6 and 7. Follow along with me. Then one of the seraphim flew to me, having in his hand a burning coal that he had taken with tongs from the altar. And he touched my mouth and said, Behold, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away and your sin atoned for. If there was any doubt in the previous verses that Isaiah's problem wasn't how small he is in the presence of a big God, but rather how wicked he is in the presence of a righteous God, that gets cleared up in verse 7 where it's abundantly clear that his problem is his sin and his guilt. In other words, his own self-assessment in the previous verses was accurate. He indeed was as doomed as he believed he was in this moment. But, but God does something that is so great that Isaiah couldn't even think to ask for it. He provides atonement. If you're a little fuzzy on the words, the word atonement, uh, the easiest way to remember it is to think of its, its component parts. So atonement, at one meant. I mean, in other words, two who were separated from each other, estranged from each other, alienated from each other, are made one again when atonement takes place. They're reconciled to one another. There's a reunion sort of aspect that takes place. And so when the seraph says to Isaiah, your guilt is taken away and your sin atoned for, he's saying in different words, Isaiah, you are now on good terms with God. You are now qualified to stand in his presence. But we should think for a moment about the mechanism by which this takes place. I would expect, I don't know about you, I I would expect that God might just declare Isaiah his sin to be atoned for. Right? Just say, Isaiah, you're now clean. You're good to stand in my presence. But he doesn't do it that way, does he? Instead, he has a seraph take a burning coal from this altar and touch it to Isaiah's lips. And so we should ask, why? Why would he make atonement in precisely that way? And the truth is we aren't told the answer to that question here in this text, but living as we do on the other side of the cross, we can't help but wonder what God had in mind here and conjecture about it a little bit. Here's how one commentator said it. Apparently, it was not a major issue to Isaiah which altar the coal came from. It may have been the incense altar before the most holy place. But from what we know of the means of God's grace in the New Testament, it is tempting to think of the coal that touched his lips as a piece of charred, smoking lamb's flesh from off the altar of sacrifice. We can't say for sure if that's what was envisioned by this, what God had in mind when he took that coal from the altar and touched it to Isaiah's lips, but here's what we do know. 700 years after Isaiah wrote these words, Jesus Christ, the God-man, the perfect spotless lamb, laid his life down on the altar as a sacrifice to atone for your sin and for mine. 
And in that moment, God showed himself not to be the senile grandfather in the sky, but rather he showed himself to be the just judge of all the earth who nevertheless atones for the sin of wicked rebels like you and like me. And how could he do that? He did it by offering himself, laying down his own life as the sacrifice for our sins, being killed, slaughtered on our behalf, taking the punishment that we deserved so that we could be made at one with God once again. There are a million implications of that for us. One of them is that there's nothing you and I could ever do to make ourselves fit to stand in God's presence. There's nothing that we could do. We're too sinful and our God won't look the other way. And so if you came here this morning, friend, as someone who is thinking, you know, I'm, I'm a pretty good person in the scheme of things. God surely will let me in. It's his job to love me after all. Please hear this morning that the moment that you even see your first glimpse of the hem of the robe of the Lord of the universe, you will fall flat on your face with the realization that you fall so desperately short of his standard for righteousness that you aren't even in the same galaxy, much less the same zip code, and being able to stand before him. The only hope that you and I ever have of standing before him is if he himself makes atonement, if he himself provides a way, if he himself points to the altar and says, atonement will come from there. And if he himself makes a way for that coal to be touched to our lips, so to speak. And he's done just that in the person of Jesus Christ at the cross. Isaiah didn't even know the fullness of what he was writing about. The New Testament tells us that Isaiah and the other prophets longed to look down the road into the fulfillment of the things that they wrote about. Yet, God declared him fit to stand in his presence, and God declared him fit to minister his word to others. And when that call came, Isaiah answered it. That's how we'll finish our time together today in verses 8 through 13. Isaiah's commissioning for ministry. Please follow along with me as I read that one last portion of our text. And I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send and who will go for us? Then I said, Here I am. Send me. And he said, Go and say to this people, Keep on hearing, but do not understand. Keep on seeing, but do not perceive. Make the heart of this people dull and their ears heavy and blind their eyes, lest they see with their eyes and hear with their ears and understand with their hearts and turn and be healed. And I said, How long, O Lord? And he said, Until cities lie waste, without inhabitant and houses without people, and the land is a desolate waste, and the Lord removes people far away, and the forsaken places are many in the midst of the land. And though a tenth remain in it, it will be burned again like a terebinth or an oak whose stump remains when it is felled. The holy seed is its stump. If you've been around North Sub the last few years, you know we've talked a lot about mission and trying to help each other see ourselves as people who, all of us, who are called to go on mission, uh, people who ought to be and can be discipling others in the church and sharing the good news with those who don't yet know Jesus. Many churches have made that same call, and they've made it from Isaiah 6 and finished up with verse 8, 
with the resounding cry of Isaiah, here I am, send me. And the pastor says, so let's go be brave like Isaiah. Something like that. But now that we've worked our way through this chapter, it should be clear that Isaiah's here I am, send me, is not about him being brave, is it? It's about him being forgiven. In other words, if you're here this morning and you're not quite brave enough to share the good news with your coworker or your family member that doesn't know Jesus, if you're not quite brave enough to approach somebody in the church to ask to get together to disciple them, your primary problem isn't your lack of bravery. After all, God doesn't call the brave. God calls the forgiven. When Isaiah sees first the depths of his sin and then the lavishness of God's grace, what he says in verse 8, here I am, send me, is not so much the cry of a hero as it is the petition of the pardoned. That's the language D.A. Carson uses for this. Not the cry of the hero, but the petition of the pardoned. It's almost as though Isaiah is saying, Lord, if your grace is that big, then would you even consider me for this task? It's not about being brave. It's about being forgiven. If our God is great enough to save us with all that we've done and failed to do, then he is surely great enough to equip us and empower us for fruitful ministry. And that's why the most natural thing for someone who has received an abundance of God's grace is to plead with God, would you please let me share this with others so that they can experience it too? It should be clear, though, that answering God's call like this can take us to some uncomfortable places. Verses 9 and 10, it certainly does for Isaiah. He's told that his message is not going to be popular. That's an understatement. Actually, it's not even going to be understood or received by his hearers. And actually, by the time Isaiah gets done preaching, it says in verses 9 and 10 that the people are going to be more blind and more deaf to the truth than they were before. They, their hearts are actually going to be more hardened to the good news than before they heard it. Did you know that that's a function of God's word? Throughout scripture, God talks about his word as something that does two things. And 2 Corinthians 2 lays it out. To some who hear God's word, it is the fragrance of life. It smells like life. And for them, when they hear the word, it just wells, makes more and more eternal life well up in their soul. They experience more and more of the fullness of it. Life to life. But then to others, they hear the truth. They hear God's word. It smells like death. And for them, the word does nothing but further entrench them in the death that they have chosen. It further hardens them against the truth. That's a hard truth to share. Many people are surprised that the most quoted verse from Isaiah in the New Testament is not in chapter 7 about the child who's going to be born. It's not in chapter 53 about the suffering servant. It's right here, chapter 6, verses 9 and 10, about how God's word hardens people's hearts when they hear it. Jesus said, this is why I tell parables, for this reason. Mark 4, he says that. In other words, when people are so entrenched in their sin, hearing God's word does nothing more than confirm them in their rebellion. Obviously, that's not what Isaiah was hoping for when he said, here am I, send me. And so he asked the question that any of us would ask, probably, in verse 11. He says, how long, O Lord? In other words, 
Do I need to do this for a week? Do I need to do this for a year? I mean, I can do this for a little while, but how long do I need to keep preaching to people who aren't going to listen to me? God's answer isn't exactly encouraging. Verses 11 through 13, you're going to preach this message until cities lie waste, until the Lord removes people far away. In other words, you're going to keep preaching this truth with so few converts and so little repentance that it won't be done until the land basically lies in total destruction. How's that for a commissioning service for a new preacher? But there's a glimmer of hope. Did you catch that in verse 13? Even as all these trees are cut down and burned, in one of the stumps there will be life. The holy seed, that's the remnant of faithful Israel, a small minority of faithful people in Israel. And from that stump, that holy seed will come, the Messiah, as chapter 11 picks up and says, the the shoot will come from the stump of Jesse. The Messiah will come from that line, that remnant. So Isaiah's purpose then is not to achieve anything that we would consider success in preaching. Rather, his purpose is to be faithful in preaching for a generation who would preserve his words and then hold on to it for a new generation that's coming after the exile who will take these words and actually hear them and respond to them. So hey, as we conclude, let's zoom out on everything we've looked at here today. We've seen Isaiah's vision of God, his confession of sin, cleansing from guilt, commissioning for ministry. And the big question I just want to ask us as we close is, have you experienced what Isaiah experienced? Have you experienced what Isaiah experienced. Not exactly like he experienced it, none of us will, but have you experienced that four-step process that he experienced? If the answer is yes, praise God. And may his word this morning from Isaiah 6 spur us on to greater faithfulness to the commission that we've been given. If the answer is no, I want you to consider that this has been made available to you, this same experience, to every single one who's here today hearing these words. If your concept of God is still light and fluffy, it's still something like a grandfather in the clouds, there is a God who is there, who is real, who can be known in his word, who is unbelievably weighty and significant such that he'll displace everything else in your life. He's made himself known And he can be known by you. Or maybe if you knew that about God, but you haven't yet experienced the personal touch of that coal to your lips, if that's where the breakdown in your process is, that you've known that God has done these things for humanity, but you haven't personally experienced his atonement for yourself, today could be the day. There's no reason why it shouldn't be. You can receive that gift even as you're here this morning. This has been my prayer as I've prepared this text this week. I've been asking, Lord, let there be somebody here this Sunday morning who would say that maybe they've heard the good news about Jesus a lot of t- and many times in their life, and it's gone in one ear and out the other before, but for some reason, as they read Isaiah 6 this morning, it's like they heard, heard the good news for the first time. Or, Lord, let there be somebody who up to this point, has just known God as a concept, but as they looked at this description of you in Isaiah 6, that they would say that, 
now I know God is a reality for the first time. He's real to me all of a sudden. I can't explain it. If you've had that experience this morning, the pathway has been laid out for you. Once you've seen God, confess your sin, agree with him about your guilt, and then receive that coal to the lips, receive his atoning sacrifice in the person of Jesus. And then when he asks for someone to go, just respond for what's, from what's already welling up in your heart. Say, here I am, Lord, would you even send me? The picture of our grandfather in heaven is not significantly weighty enough to transform your life. It's not even enough to bring you to tears, for that matter. It's not admirable that there be a grandfather in the sky who just looks the other way at our sin. That's actually pretty pathetic. When we think of God that way, we miss out on not only on how terrifying he is, but also on how great his grace is. What we've seen today is that it's a grace that even though all we deserved was to be instantly incinerated in his presence, it's a grace that laid his own life down so that we could be made one with him again. Is that the God that you've come to know? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, words fail when you try to describe your awesome greatness that we see revealed in scriptures like this one, where your servants have fumbled at words to describe even the hem of your robe or the pavement under your feet. Lord, it's an awesome and a dreadful thought that we would stand before you one day. Thank you for making a way for that to be true, that we could stand before you and stand before you redeemed, cleansed, and somehow to hear you saying that you want to use us for your glory. May we live out that commission and live through your grace and minister that grace to others. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's